morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and joining me once again after his holiday, uh, we've got Matthew here. Um, and for the first time ever, I'm also joined by Martin, who is the social media manager and in charge of doing promotions for the Sustainable Population Australia organization. Um, now, this is an organization which, although they have a very different, uh, maybe ideological basis, from Matthew and myself and many of the listeners, um, they do come to the same conclusions in terms of immigration restrictions. So it will be very interesting to hear uh, Martin's perspective and learn more about the organisation. How are you going, guys? Did you have a good week? Yeah, I did. Thank you. Good to hear. Yeah, likewise. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed your holiday. Um, Thank you. So without further ado, I think we'll launch right into it. Um, Martin, could you just tell us about the history and uh, what the organisation Sustainable Population Australia stands for? Sure. Well, obviously, as the name suggests, it's around the population issue. Um, The history of the organisation, it's been around about 40-odd years. I've been involved for two or three years. Our founder, I believe, is Jenny Goldie. as I say, I've only been on the, with the organisation formally for three years, so the, the history kind of eludes me a little bit. But Jenny Goldie is our current president. I know she's been there since the start. Uh, she's a, an inspirational leader for us. Um, so, yeah, I, I got drawn into it via... I was already doing work for the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, which is basically a new economic paradigm challenging the idea of endless economic growth. And that obviously embraces things like consumption, overconsumption, um, environment, population, all, all sorts of things. Yeah, so very related to the work that you do today. And um, could you just explain what kind of advocacy Sustainable Population Australia is involved in? Well, technically, we're an ecological charity. We're non-political. Um, we, we share our message with anybody who wants to listen um, across the ideological spectrum, across the political spectrum, because at the end of the day, it's fundamental ecology and economics that dictates population levels and what they should be and what produces the ideal outcomes. So that's more or less where I come from and where the organisation comes from. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you find that um, among the other the constellation of other environmental groups, do you guys fit in well? Are you uh, accepted by a lot of the other organisations? <laughs> no, is the short answer. Um, no, I didn't think so. <laughs> no, no, look, population has become a, a taboo topic. Um, it, it kind of defies my brain how any organ, any so-called environmental organisation can ignore the role of a rapidly expanding population when it comes to environmental impacts, but somehow they find a way to, to dodge it um, because maybe they feel it's unpopular or something. I don't know. To me, it's just gutless. I mean, we're... As far as I'm aware, we're the only major ecological organisation that's willing to tackle this uh, issue, and uh, I'm very disappointed that others don't. Um, and maybe if we we're patient and we persist, eventually they'll come round because we really don't want to alienate anyone. We want everybody to unite on this issue because it's the biggest issue that Australia faces right now. Yeah, no, hundred percent in agreement. Um, although maybe for different ideological reasons. Um, Matthew and I, myself, we do uh, take into account the environmental uh, impact of the rapidly growing population, um, although we also look at it from a cultural, ethnic and um, various other perspectives, economic as well. And um, 
yeah, we've come to the conclusion that we need to uh, restrict immigration severely. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, do you, are you involved at all with the Sustainable Australia Party by any chance? Well, I was. Um, the, um, the Being with a, a, a non-political ecological charity, um, you cannot be involved with politics at the same time. It, it, it's part of our charter and part of our charitable um, status is that we, we're, we're not political. I did run for the Australian, uh, the Sustainable Australia Party three times in three elections um, because I very much, I read their policies. Most people don't read policies before they vote. They just vote on who's got the nicest tie or the, the shortest slogan. I don't know. But I actually read the policies and I agreed with them. So I ran for them and I did a lot of work for them for many years. It cost me a lot of money out of my own pocket and I'm not that well off. Um, so, yes, I was involved with them, but no longer. Uh, I'm now focusing 100% on Sustainable Population Australia and the current campaign we're running, which we're calling Say No to a Big Australia. Okay, very interesting. And is that um, is that going into uh, – Do you, are you going to be promoting that throughout the coming elections? For example, we've got the local elections coming up, which aren't hugely consequential in terms of this issue, um, but for future elections going forward, um, are you hoping that any party will adopt this stance? Uh, is that the kind of strategy that you guys pursue? Our goal here is to we have a position statement um, which can be read on our website and our goal is to get as many signatures on that as we can and we've only just got started and we've already got, uh, I think, last count a couple of days ago, over 1,700 signatures on it. We want to get that up over 10,000 signatures. Once we get sufficient signatures to demonstrate that how Australia really feels about this mass immigration, rapid population growth agenda, uh, then we have more influence over politicians, media. We can get our voice heard. So our strategy is to have this say no to a big Australia, get as many people as we possibly can to sign the position statement. Then we take that out and use that. We have a team of academics and lobbyists and so on who can then have a lot more power to influence political decisions across the political spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, that's great to hear that you guys are having such great success. Um, do you see with Albanese's recent uh, acknowledgement that immigration has been way too high? He even said in his own words that he wants to bring it back down to sustainable levels. Um, <laughs> Don't make do you see laugh. the... <laughs> yeah, I, I understand it. What he's suggesting is not at all sustainable, but... Do you see that um, opening up a gap in the left for you guys, the environmental maybe, I would say, rather than the left, the environmentalist scene for your guys' ideas to come in? Look, he, it's, a complete, it's a PR stunt. It's a complete lie. It's not sustainable. What happened was we had a sustainable intake pre-John Howard. He doubled slash tripled our immigration intake. That's now considered normal. That was what was driving the big Australia population agenda. That added millions to our population in a very short space of time. Now Albanese's taken it through the roof and wants to bring it back to what is an extreme level and call it sustainable slash normal. It's a load of nonsense. Um, so we're, we're exposing that. And I think a lot of the public aren't falling for that. That's it, It's just rubbish. Um, and even then, he's only saying we'll get there in a few years and he's still going to be bringing in these overseas students that are competing for rental and low-wage jobs and 
Um, so, no, he's not genuine. He's just playing politics. Yeah, no, of course. That's, um, that. I think we can all see that the record high level that he's bringing it down to is not acceptable. Um, I'm also meant, do you think that this will open up the, uh, the Greens or perhaps Labor um, voters to hearing your perspective now that um, even Albanese has acknowledged that there is a level of immigration that is too high, um, although he's doing it for mainly economic reasons? Do you see that as uh, leaving a gap for you guys to get in? Yeah, Your false message. economic reasons. The, the economics are flawed. But, yes, it does. It is leaving a gap because I think people across the, the spectrum and across ideologies, I'm not exactly sure. You say we have different ideologies. I'm not exactly sure what yours are. But I'm finding that people from the right, from the left, from the middle, they're all resonating with our message. Um, so I think there's definitely a gap there and I think there's a political gap there for the first party that's willing to come out and... Um, in, in a big way and, and go down this path. I mean, I can't obviously be political and talk about political parties, but I can talk generally. There's definitely a gap there um, for where the public are being frustrated by being ignored on this issue. Yeah, you're right. Um, maybe I can ask you, could you please outline for the audience from start to finish what will be the ecological ramifications of the mass immigration and the mass population growth that we're having maybe in the Australian context, but also later on in the uh, global context, if that's okay. Yeah, well, the Australian context should be really obvious. I mean, first of all, we're the driest inhabited continent on Earth. Um, sure, we're going through a wet phase now, but we've, how quickly we forget the last drought. Water is an issue. Um, soils are also an issue. People are far less aware of that. Um, the Even just watching the housing estates rolling out, the bush that's come down in my area, the habitat has all been destroyed and now there's wall-to-wall roofs across that where what was trees and forests. They're obvious. Then there's the resource demands. Then there's the waste production. All of these things go with a growing population. Um, then there's the, the effects of the changing climate, our, how we're going to respond to that. And I would have thought that loading millions more people onto our, our land would not be a... a an appropriate response, in fact, placing our people in danger. Um, Australia, people have to understand that Australia is a, is basically a desert with a, a narrow coastal fringe. And they, you know, you see these silly comparisons with, a, with North America having so many millions of people and every river in Australia would fit into the Mississippi River and take up only part of its flow. That's how dry we are. So there's that. And then the, if you t- want to talk about the global situation, well, you only have to look at, at the, glo- the state of the global environment with the pollution, the loss of forests, the loss of biodiversity. Sure, there are other factors, um, you know, like pe- overconsumption is always pointed to. And yes, a lot of people do grossly overconsume. But even if you stop them and spread the available ecological capital amongst eight plus billion people, you're still going to find that there's ecological damage in, in one way or another. So globally, it's an issue um, and nationally, it's an issue. So it's an issue everywhere. And um, certainly, we're not setting a very good example by being a high-consuming nation and at the same time, rapidly growing our population because we falsely believe it's good for the economy. It is good for certain vested interests within the economy. That's a very different thing than being good for the national economy generally. Yeah, no, I think we are also in full agreement on that. Um, 
So in terms of the water shortages, do you see um, something, because I've often heard it said, uh, desalination plants could be the solution to our lack of water? Um, it's not something that I, uh, I really believe, to be honest, but maybe you could outline the reason why uh, we can't build our way out of uh, a massive, massive population. Well, you know, I'm no expert on desalination plants, but as I understand, they're massively energy hungry at a time when we're trying to reduce our energy demands um, to wean ourselves off fossil fuels and move to more renewable um, sources. So setting up a situation where you have energy-hungry water conversion plants just to satisfy the developer demands for a, for higher immigration and more water demand seems like a pretty crazy plan to me. Um, I think you're better off learning to live within the limits of your land and the technology that's not ecologically damaging, um, there is, there is thing, there are things you can do. You can eliminate waste and re reduce the amount that's used in certain processes and in certain households and so on. But at the end of the day, just growing the population and then, and who's going to fund these, um, desal plants? They have to be built before people arrive. Not after they right? They can't arrive and carrying a bottle of water and say, well, you've got to live off that till you pay for the desal plant. It's going to be the existing taxpayers that are paying for that. You ask the property developers to pay for it because they're the ones profiting from this scam and they'll suddenly their whole scheme will go bust because they're not paying for the infrastructure. So it's just typical, another example of how we, the existing Australian, the existing taxpayer is funding the infrastructure for the migrants that are coming in so that certain vested interests can make profits off them. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, it's definitely not acceptable. Matthew, uh, did you want to go ahead? Yeah, we see that a lot with not only just environmental infrastructure, but public tourism, road infrastructure, uh, schools, education, healthcare. There's been a big drain on our uh, public and social infrastructure. So why do you see within the political class and the media class such a reluctance to address the, the cause of this, which being immigration? Oh, that's a really good and tricky question. Um, look, I think let me try to be as polite and as sensitive about this as I can. Let's say I think they're listening to the wrong interests, the politicians. Certain people are presenting their economic case and they're listening to that, but they're not analysing it from other perspectives there are economists out there that are pointing out the deeply flawed economics, as you say, not just uh, water and, and so on, but schools, hospitals, roads, all of this infrastructure has to be funded. And, and especially when most migrants want to move to the city, there's huge costs in retrofitting cities, which are far more than just put rolling out a new suburb. So these costs are not being properly factored in. Another element is the fact that we have the federal government dictating immigration population policy, they tend to collect the revenues and then dump the costs onto the states. So we have a breakdown in communication where I guess the states don't want to challenge the federal agenda. Um, but meanwhile, they're being left with the impossible task of funding the infrastructure to support these uh, massive population increases. So I just don't think the government's doing their sums properly. I, I don't know how these people get their jobs, some of them, but um, it's not that hard to analyse and there's plenty. we've got plenty of stuff on our website. Um, one of our leading ac academics, Dr Jane O'Sullivan, has done a brilliant paper uh, quantifying the costs 
that relate to population growth and showing how far they exceed the revenues generated. So what an economic fail it is. So if they even took the time to read one of our papers on our website um, uh, on population.org.au, they would they would find out the truth of the matter. But I don't know, lazy lazy thinking, who knows? Did you have a follow-up for that one, Matthew? Oh, no, that's all good. Um, I wanted to ask, what do you think it is among environmentalists that is keeping them back from supporting you? Is there an ideological component within uh, perhaps maybe the Greens Party, Labor Party, or do you see it as purely a matter of vested interests being, um, you know, they've maybe got uh, they've got some foot in the property uh, sector or something like that, which will benefit from high immigration, uh, that, that being the representatives from these parties? Well, I think it's pretty obvious with the Greens what happened is that um, the people that are making money from population growth needed to think, now, what can we do here to keep the Greens off our back? Because obviously there's an ecological, horrendous ecological cost here. So what they came up with was the idea of to talk population is to be a racist. Then they did everything in their power to make sure that the biggest crime you could commit on earth is to be a racist. So... The green, this, of course, terrified the Greens, you know, that any thought that they could be called a racist for questioning population growth. Um, and so, in my view, they they lacked the moral fortitude to stand up and say, hey, no, it's not racist. We're not talking about individual people or, or ethnicities here. We're talking about numbers, unsustainable, ecologically and economically damaging numbers. But instead of doing that, they just backed down and they actually well, pretty much joined with the, the 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 corporate cry of anyone who talks population is therefore a racist and hates brown people and and all this nonsense. So, and I think that applies quite a bit across the broader environmental organisation spectrum. Um, it's just that particular tag has just frightened everyone off, and that's one of the reasons why I joined Sustainable Population Australia is because. We understand that this is an issue of economics, of ecology, of balance with the earth, of what's best for all Australians. It's it's not that. It's just been made to be that by those who don't want us discussing it. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the case. Um, yeah, we've uh, often heard it said from our side, from the right-wingers, that um, you know we have immigrants that will come from the third world into Australia or into other first-world countries and they will, uh, you know, by mul- uh, multiple times, they will increase their carbon consumption or their, their output in terms of um, energy use and various other things. Uh, and this will be, you know, this is obviously going in complete contradiction to the message we're hearing from the left that, or, or maybe from the environmentalists, that um, because of uh, the, the ozone layer becoming thickened and because of uh, carbon in the, in the atmosphere, this is causing climate change. Um, and yet they still bring them into Australia and into other first world countries. Um, so clearly the ideology of anti-racism has trumped any sort of um, concept of environmentalism, um, even within the environmentalists. Um, although I suppose you, uh, your organisation and organisations like Sustainable, uh, the Sustainable Australia Party um, stand as a testament that there are some environmentalists that are still standing true to actual environmentalism. Um, I wanted to get Matthew. Uh, I've sent you through an article. It's by Sky News. Um, it's talking a little bit about the uh, growth of the teals 
And so uh, the teals, of course, represent uh, a loose or, I suppose, uh, a connected group of independents who took seats away from the Liberals uh, over the last election. And this is largely because they had an environmentalist sort of brand or a spin um, for the inner, that worked for that uh, former Liberal voting uh, demographic, often in the inner city. Um, I just wanted to get you to read that, Matthew, and maybe we'll get your opinion on that, Martin, and what that could mean for um, these for the growth of environmentalism and especially how it's touching politics. Okay. So, yeah, uh, the article goes on to say, the Till movement is spreading north into Queensland. Climate 200, which backed 23 independents at the last federal election, now wants to expand into the Sunshine State. The book held seats of Fairfax on the Sunshine Coast and McPherson on the Gold Coast are spe- specifically being targeted. So what are your thoughts on that, Martin? Will they have much success in southeast Queensland? Well, look, populist, shallow, tokenistic environmentalism is not a bad political strategy, so they probably will have um, success. But at the end of the day, they're still dodging the big issue, which is the whole issue of and this is my um, Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy side coming out a little bit here, the whole idea of endless economic growth measured by GDP, a perpetually expanding economy which drives overconsumption, encourages wasteful overconsumption, which encourages overpopulation. This is the big issue. It's this the economic growth issue and this is something that seems to be beyond the comprehension of most teals or either that or they don't really want to talk about it. So what they're trying to do is solve the problems created by the existing paradigm within the current paradigm, within the mindset that created them. And you're not, it's not going to work, but it will get you votes. So if the question is, do I think they'll do all right? Then I think they probably will. Will it solve the problem? No. Do you see uh, this as demonstration that there's fertile ground for your ideas to spread, or what do you think you can do to tailor your message to appeal to these kinds of um, these voters and people that live in these electorates? Yeah, well, that's that's sort of a million dollar question, and Spar has been trying for forty years to gain mass appeal and hasn't made a whole lot of progress. But I do feel we're making a lot more progress now because I think with the massive surge. Um, that Mr. Albanese has organised, the the, the um, symptoms that we warned about that would happen with excessive population growth have now been multiplied many fold and they're staring people in the face when they drive down the street and see people living in tents under bridges and when their kids try to get a rental accommodation they've got to queue up with 30 overseas students who are willing to go five in a house just to get it. Um, so it's really in people's face now. So I'd like to think that um, that our message is resonating and, and our the early signs of our Say No to a Big Australia campaign, we're just developing graphics and so on now, but we've just recently done a Facebook um, post on our, on our Facebook page on um, the Sustainable Population Australia and that attracted, well, last I looked, 2,600 likes and hundreds and hundreds of comments and hundreds and hundreds of shares so if that's anything to go by, then I think we've got our messaging right and I think it will start to resonate and people will start to consider the, the broader consequences of population growth and economic growth and 
recognise that we're on a finite land, a particularly fragile finite land here in Australia and a finite planet. What do you estimate is the timeline until we start to see really severe uh, ecological problems? I've heard from people who work um, at the water department in uh, New South Wales that um, we, I think they gave us a couple of decades maybe before, um, you know, before we have to completely be reliant upon desalination. Um, what do you, what do you see as the timeline for that? I think the timeline's begun. I think we've seen floods. I think we've seen bushfires. I think we're, we're in it now and we're, you know, we're not, you tend to sort of adapt to change. Humans are pretty good at forgetting disasters and mostly and, and, and not seeing what's going on that, you know, you've probably heard the boiling frog thing about the frog that sits in the pot and while it's boiling and doesn't jump out because it just gradually gets hotter and hotter. Um, it's a bit like that. I think it's begun. It's accelerating. Um, Australia's um, already suffering ecological problems. Um, serious. I mean, the biodiversity loss alone, the loss of our forests. You know, I drive around and, you know, I live on New South Wales south coast and every time I drive around, there's another section of forest is being bulldozed and another housing estate going in and another dam being built and less water flow um, available for nature and for the animals and for the the food chains that rely on, on on good, healthy rivers and all of that sort of thing. So it's happening now, the timeline's now. We're already in ecological collapse in the early stages um, and our response seems to be that we just want to grow the economy and grow the population and I, that's just going to accelerate it. So um, I don't have a crystal ball and these things, no one really knows that's the scary thing. These things are so chaotic. You start triggering chain reactions and, you know, one day things can seem all right and the next thing it's all over. Um, you know, you only have to look to past civilizations, how quickly some of them have collapsed after thinking they were just fine. Um, I think we're very complacent and I think we need to be a lot more worried and a lot more active. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that makes sense. Go ahead, Matthew. On that, you see, I've seen a lot of um, all forms of government across federal, state and local governments, particularly in New South Wales, a lot of talk and discussion around this transition to a circular economy. Uh, do you see this as being a realistic aim that we can do as a country or is this just um, some sort of political spin or, or messaging? Um, I think it's political posturing if they don't actually do anything about it, if they just say we can do it. You know, I've seen a few of the politicians standing up, you know, in front of a circular economy sign but nothing they're doing fits with a circular economy type thing. A circular economy is a little misleading. That's why I prefer the steady state. It's all on the same sort of track and there's the donut economy. They're all thinking along the same lines, so I don't want to knock them. But the, the slight criticism I have of circular is that nothing is truly circular. Uh, an economy requires inputs and creates waste. Yes, it can be more efficient, but it, it, I don't believe it can ever be truly circular in that all its inputs and all its, its waste become inputs such that it goes round and round. But it can approach that by being a lot more efficient with, with um, resources. But I rarely see circular economy people or donut economy people, unlike the steady state economy people that do acknowledge uh, the population role in this um, circularity and sustainability has to be established at a scale that can be sustained over the long period and at the moment we are we're way more in overshoot than most people realize they they think oh yeah we're in overshoot we've got climate change and we've got this and that but it's far far we're far far further into overshoot than most people realize 
So to establish a circular economy or a, or a steady state economy, we first of all got to get ourselves back to sustainable scale in some sort of balance and harmony with our planet and with our lands. Perhaps this is getting a little bit off the original topic. Uh, just quickly, did you want to follow up on that, Matthew? I'll take that as a no. Uh, just to okay. get a little bit off the original topic, um, do you, have you ever heard of the plan to flood Australia's centre, or not not the whole centre, but um, with uh, the sea and create an inland sea uh, and, then, and then grow population, create a big Australia that way? Would you see any viability in that? That's a bit far-fetched, but um, it, it seems like a sort of attractive idea to, to grow Australia. Do you see any viability in that? Uh, no. Um, I mean, I've been to central Australia. Most of it is dead flat. So you flood it and what have you got? Some big shallow sea that's just become that with super high evaporation rates and becomes so salty you could walk across it. Um, I just don't know where such an idea might come from. What's an ocean going to do in the middle? It's not freshwater. Um, how much is it going to cost? Um, what are the ecological impacts? What are the? I mean, there'd be so much work to do on an idea like that. Um, I, see, I hear a lot of people come up with, rather than tackle the core issue of, say, population growth, they say, oh, but if we do this and if we do that, if we build all these big dams in the north and pipe all the water all the way down to the south, you know, but they haven't done the ecological studies, they haven't done the economic studies. You know, what happens if you've got a, a massive pipeline and hundreds of millions of people in the south relying on it coming from the north and we end up in a war and someone bombs the pipeline? I mean, there's so many issues that, you know, these people come up with these ideas and, and it's great that they they think creatively, but then you've got to sit down and do the analysis. And when you do the analysis, uh, at the end of the day, none of them stack up to justify an Australia of 100 million people or whatever the end game is here, we're, we're never told. Um, and, and even if they are worthy, surely the goal, the thing to do would be, the sensible thing to do would be to stabilise now then develop the plan, build the infrastructure, have everything ready to go and then say, all right, you know, now we've got our inland sea, we've got our, you know, seaside resorts and our water out there and, and farms ready to go. Now let's bring the people in, but not the other way around. Don't bring them in and then say, oh, but maybe if we do this or maybe we do that, won't work, dangerous. Yeah, no, I, that makes sense. I think it was called the Bradfield Scheme. It was developed quite a while ago. Um and it never never got a funding or a serious look into it, I don't think. Um, now, I, just to get uh, or go on to a different topic altogether, do you put any stock in um, cultural or ethnic arguments about uh, the dangers of mass immigration or are you purely focused on environmental and you don't see any of the others as a, an issue? We focus on the environmental and, and economic ones because they're quantifiable and easy to argue. I mean, we can prove our case. The other ones uh, around cultural and so on, um, that is that becomes very subjective. And generally, we'll leave that to others, uh, perhaps you guys, to make discussions and make points around that. The only thing I'd probably say on it, though, is that in my opinion, when you have a relatively stable population and gentle inflows and outflows of people into that culture and that country, generally the, the culture and the will survive and prosper and maybe gain from the, the cross-fertilisation of ideas and people. 
Um, but when everything happens so fast, it's just another thing that falls out of control and um, it becomes unmanageable. And so probably that's about all I can really say on it because it's not really my area of expertise. I focus on the economics and the ecology. Um, but I just believe that everything is easier to manage and more uh, and beneficial and, and better for our country when it's done at a scale that can be managed. And at the scale we're doing things now is obviously not being managed. Yeah, no, I think that's clear to see. Um, yeah, we really are being overloaded at the moment just from sheer numbers, uh, let alone speaking about uh, the character of the immigration, although I, I do also think that is very important. Um, Matthew, did you want to ask anything uh, at all? And um, just uh, on a different topic here, my understanding of the academic literature is that a lot of the ecological um, misuse and harm does come from the global rich and the global poor. Is there a sort of um, – do you guys tackle this kind of foreign issues, trying to uh, alleviate the standard of living conditions for the global poor to raise them up to a standard of living where they can um, be more environmentally uh, sustainable or have greater stewardship of the earth? You say you're talking about our role in the global population discussion, is that right? Yeah. Yes, we do, um, very much so. We have, a, an, again, on our website, population.org.au, we have a global population um, section there where you can read what we've done and what we do and our policies there. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's we're not, we can't operate in isolation. We, we believe we need to set a good example here and then take the example and show others how we do it. Um, we also believe that a strong investment in education, family planning um, and so on in the developed world is um, will help them uh, have more sustainable populations and also just basically develop rather than grow. There's two different – it's a bit of a difference there between development and growth. But um, – what we're saying globally is that one of the the big messages, again, that was from a paper by our one of our leading academics, Dr. Jane O'Sullivan, again, was around the idea that for poor countries to develop and to improve their per capita outcomes, population stabilisation has to come first because at the moment what's happening in those poorer countries is that population growth is overwhelming their opportunity to develop uh, individually and as communities and as nations. So our message, people say, well, if you get them all to, if you make them all rich, they have smaller families. Well, first of all, their land and our earth can't afford to make 6 billion people rich because the consumption would just kill the place. So secondly, I don't know if that would work. It would take too long and, and I, it's just no sign of that happening. But what can happen very quickly is we can encourage and it's been shown that where you send out a strong family planning message, a message around the smaller populations and the benefits, um, a greater per capita share of resources and, and the environmental benefits and so on, and the chance to invest more money in fewer children means that you can send, um, say, two, two to three kids, whatever they have, that you can send them to school and to university because you have more money. Um, so the days of needing many hands to run the farm and, and so on are over. The education is the way forward, and that's that's pretty much our 
message globally. The thing at the moment why we've temporarily just focused primarily on Australia is because Australia is in this population crisis, this immigration crisis. So um, maybe for this year we'll might ease back a bit on the global work that we do and just really focus on Australia, but we never forget it and it is always there. It's part of what we do. Yeah, I think that's uh, very important. The third world is really demonstration of what can happen if we don't get our population under control in our own time. We don't have to look to the past or have theoretical ideas. We can we can have a look at um, at the kind of uh, the poverty that can develop because of it, well, among other factors. Um, I also wanted to ask you, uh, as a devil's advocate, what do you say to the um, the point of view that we need immigration because we've got an ageing population? Um, well, I'm allowed to talk about what comes out of bulls or not. Um, when you're <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, look, it's, it's, it's just another excuse by the uh, population expansionists that has been debunked numerous times. The principal point being that population growth does not generate the revenues to pay for itself, let alone to support an ageing population. The, the, the demographic shift from um, towards stability is inevitably at some point going to involve an ageing bulge, which can be coped with and managed. Um, it's just a scare tactic to keep people in the mass immigration fold. Um, they underestimate the values of older people they basically write them off from, from 67 and say they're not contributing anything, which is nonsense. Um, it's, it's just a phase that we've got to manage. It, it's not a reason for mass immigration. And look, how many have we just brought in? Half a million in the last year? What happens when they age? Then we've got an even bigger bulge down the track. So what do we do then? Bring in a million, two million to support that half a million? I mean, this Infinite. is... Infinite immigrants. <laughs> it's just it's just a nonsense. It's just so clearly flawed that I can't believe anyone believes it. But you put that out there, the the, the vested interests in the, the property developers and the like, put it out there that we've got oh, we've got this aging population, we need migrants, but I don't know. And um and people buy it. You know, I've got to deal with it all the time. It's it doesn't take much thinking to, to see that it's not it's not the answer. But um Anyway, it's, as I say, just they, all they've got to do is throw stuff out that sounds good and then all we've got to spend most of our time debunking it, which is a difficult job. Mm, yeah, and also, yeah, it's true, and they've got the benefit of uh, media hegemony. They don't have exactly, to debunk exactly. your ideas. Sorry, go ahead, Matthew. Also onto that point is we're seeing over the last century productivity per worker has skyrocketed and you've got the coming innovations of AI and other uh, creative destruction coming. So we don't really need this idea of replacement migration because the workers we currently have in this country will become more productive and be able to care for the aging populations. Yeah, well, we're, we're using population growth to, we're, we're, first of all, we're throwing ourselves into the cheap labour global economy, which we shouldn't be. But when you can make lazy profits just by growing the population and building houses and building new hardware stores and new shopping malls, Where's the incentive to be more to invest in productivity and innovation? It's not there. There's lazy money to be made just by growing the population. And exactly as you say, the future should be about artificial intelligence, about doing things more efficiently. We should be moving away from a labour-based economy, not not into a globalised cheap labour uh, economy. That's then we're competing with 
you know, the bottom of the bottom of the ladder. I mean, we, we if we want to be a, a smart country, um, mass importation of cheap, exploitable migrant labour is the last thing we should be doing. We should be encouraging companies to make money um, via innovation, productivity improvements and, and all sorts of other means. But we're not doing that. We're just feeding them human fodder and it's all too easy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, do you see the? Uh, do you have, see any benefit in encouraging people to shift towards, or the economy to switch towards uh, productive assets over non-productive assets such as housing, which uh, benefit the most from this massive immigration? Oh, absolutely. We should be making things again. We should be, you know, like value adding. Um, th- that's where we should be going. Instead, we're encouraging this sector of the economy that's making unimaginable profits. You and I could not imagine how much money um, is in the property game and and the associated economic parasites, I call them, the, those that want to sell stuff to the growing population. They're not making anything or producing anything or they're, they're not uh, exporting anything that we can, that makes money for our country. They're just, they're just parasiting off population growth. So yes, we, we definitely should be going back to encouraging our own manufacturing and, and, and so on. I'm not a big fan of, this is me personally not speaking on behalf of SPA, I'm not a big fan of the whole globalisation thing because to me that just favours um, whoever can produce things using the, by exploiting labour the cheapest and, and, and who can has the, the minimal environmental protections. So in other, in other words, whoever can make things cheapest um, wins and so that's encouraging the two things we don't want. We don't want to be exploiting humans and we don't want to be exploiting the environment. Um, so in my personal opinion, that I'm not a big fan of this whole globalisation things. I'd like to see us making more things locally, um, more localization of our economy, less shipping of goods around the world, um, all that sort of stuff to be being encouraged again. Yeah, it really is short-sighted. Um, did you want to ask anything, Matthew? Uh, nothing on that. It's just a, a comment that... Um, we get taught in universities and high schools in economics around free trade is this theory of a specialization and it's this focus on quantity of outputs rather than quality or or more broadly usefulness. And so I think it'd be good in the education system to transition away from this idea of more, more, more into something more sustainable. Yeah, exactly. I think we're being educated into this neoliberal economic system and people are not opening their minds to other alternatives. And the problem with that is it quite often doesn't engage factors such as the environment and as quality of life. Um, As Robert Kennedy said, GDP measures everything except the things that matter. And um, that's pretty much what the system we've got now, which is entirely focused around profits, um, monetising things, and certain things, and this is where strong government and strong politicians are needed, um, are not reflected in the GDP figure or in neoliberal economics. They're not accounted for. And we need to start bringing more social outcomes and environmental outcomes into our national paradigm, global paradigm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, maybe you could talk more on uh, from your economics background. Um, what was one of the alternative uh, systems that you proposed? I know you said that you wanted to move away from GDP and 
infinite growth um, as the model upon which we build our, our society. Uh, what was the alternative that you were proposing at your previous uh, institution that you're working for? Well, currently we measure growth by GDP, the monetary value of the economy, and that lumps everything together. Um, so if you clean up after a flood and there's massive insurance payments, that all goes into GDP. So it's just this amount of money circulating in the economy. And that's pretty much all we measure. And politicians pin their whole political success on the fact that they've made the economy grow. Now, you could sell off all Australian ports and add that into GDP and you've made the economy grow and everyone pats you on the back and say, aren't you clever? Um, so what it comes back to is the concept that you are what you measure and we're measuring the wrong things. So what we need is a new set of performance indicators, economic, ecological and social. We need to start measuring things. And one thing we can measure, for example, on, say, outcomes for people is hospital beds per thousand, which have been in decline uh, ever since we started growing our population. That's that's quantifiable. We can say, right, look, we've got more hospital beds than we had before. There's a performance indicator and we direct policy towards ensuring that. Now, one of those would be not to grow your population. Um, you could have environmental performance indicators um, and, and that might be the amount of restored ecosystem. And I'm always careful to say ecosystem, not tree planting, because we see a lot of just random tree planting um, oh, look, we've planted, planted a million trees, but they're often green deserts. They're often just sterile uh, monocultures of trees. We need to restore ecosystems. So river flows, things like that, um, we can measure those sorts of things. So what I'm saying is that we need to get away from, from an economics point of view, measuring the size of the economy and saying that's good enough. We need to build in some more um, indicators to measure our progress. And the big one at the moment might be housing. You can look at how many people are homeless or, or suffering rental stress or mortgage stress. And if that's going up, then we're not doing the right, we haven't got the right policies. If that's going down, then maybe we're on the right track. So it's a bit more complicated than the simplistic one-figure approach to summing up how a nation or a world should work. But um, that's where we, we need to be a bit smarter. We've got plenty of smart people. We've got plenty of computer power. There's no way, no reason why we can't do this, and we just need to move away from this um, outdated mindset. Yeah, one hundred percent. I don't know if you saw. I think it was maybe a year ago now, but um, or it, it was a year or two when Russia invaded Ukraine, and they were cut off from the economic uh, system, the global economic system. Um, a lot of trade that just was ceased with them. They were able to rebound fairly well, uh, I think up to 80% capacity of what they originally were. Their dollar was originally valued at um, just because they had they were producing all their own stuff within their country, for example, food, energy, um, and, and uh, various other exports as well to those who were still trading with them. Um, how do you th- – because uh, I wanted to bring that up because Australia's economy is often described as having the profile of a third world economy where we have um, very much, we're focused on a few very large, maybe resource industries, also housing as well. Um, from your from your economic background, maybe you could speak about, um, and, and combining uh, your environmental background, how can we shift towards a more self-reliant stance for Australia? Is, for example, uh, energy independence in terms of solar panels, wind technology, all of that, do you see that as the way uh, for let's imagine for, uh, for a moment that the population 
uh, issue was solved. Um, what would you what would you recommend in that regard? Yeah, well, that's very interesting what you said about Ukraine. I didn't know that. Um, so there'd be probably some lessons there. I think Australia could look around the world to what a lot of other countries are doing. Um, Japan, for example, has had a declining population and a grow and improving quality of life for a long time. So, um, so what you're saying is, if we had a stable population, how could we become more self reliant and more? Um, in a perfect um, world, um, what kind of uh, would you recommend some of this uh, environmental technology that we see? Um, being implemented at the moment, such as wind, solar, oh, okay. um, and heat, etc. Would you re- would you see that as uh, being a way that Australia's economy can shift towards, so that we don't have to be so reliant on growth and uh, have our economy tied to the global economy and whatnot? Yeah, look, I think I think as long as these things are properly thought through, there's a little bit of a knee jerk that oh, wind is clean, solar is clean, and and they're very quick to turn a blind eye to some of the mining practices and some of the broad, the, the different set of ecological, it might be solving the emissions thing, but creating a new set of ecological problems and on the, and, and still relating it back to the scale that that can be done such that it doesn't negatively degrade the environment. Really, we should have a responsibility. I don't know how anyone could argue with this, that our generation should hand it on to our environment, onto the next generation in as good or better condition than we received it. We don't have the right to run it down. Um, so as long as we properly analyse all the things we're doing, um, then, yes, all of those things could be good. I also remember when Australia used to make washing machines and all sorts of other things. Um, I think we could go back to encouraging some more manufacturing. Um, our agricultural sector is always going to be important. Mining, I think, will be important, but it should be managed um, a little better, perhaps a little little slower in the more long-term interests of Australians. I think it's all a bit gung-ho at the moment, just dig it up and sell it as quick as possible. Um, but agricultural sector is certainly something that we could have, a, I think, would be a big thing for us going forward. And at the moment, we're seeing some of our prime market garden, agricultural land around Sydney and Melbourne and places like that being concreted over. And I remember when I was younger driving through some of those areas and they were growing all sorts of crops and selling them to the people that lived in Sydney and Melbourne and whatever. Um, now it's just urban sprawl. So I think I think certainly in a place like Australia, agriculture, the other one that could be really big for us if we look after our land and make it beautiful again, a place worth visiting, is, is tourism. You know, people, we've still got the barrier, as long as we look after it, the barrier reef, we've got the red centre is amazing, we've got some amazing beaches. We've got so much that people from around the world might want to come and see. But at the moment, we're destroying so much of that, which could be a long-term asset, a tourism asset that our children and many, many generations could benefit from. Um, but at the moment, the rate we're destroying, there'll be nothing for them to show people. No, no one's going to come want to come around the world and see housing estates and free and freeways. They can get that at home. So um, there's all sorts of things. It's kind of limited. Um, limited only by the imagination once we start being imaginative and move away from this narrow uh, growth model that we've got at the moment. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, just touching on that, you say you want us to uh, go back into manufacturing as we had. The the classic economic, um, we get taught in schools, is that we lost manufacturing due to the uh, labour cost competitiveness of uh, second world countries such as China, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, 
is there any way we could compete with the lower wages um, in a in a free market uh, system, or do we have to have some sort of protectionism to promote domestic industry? Well, look at Japan. They've they've mechanized, innovated, then they compete. They make things. They manufacture. And they don't operate on a low-wage economy, as far as I'm aware. Um, yes, there is. Look, obviously, I'm not saying we should do inefficient things that just because, because. but um, I think it's certainly something that we could do. I mean, to some extent, when you say protectionism, um, I know when I was with the Sustainable Australia Party, there was some discussion around what might be called a um, where other countries gain an unfair competitive advantage using cheap labour or poor environmental uh, practices. Um, Australia could be within their rights to, I, I don't, this is just thoughts off my head, but could be within their rights to, we could be within our rights to say, well, okay, we're going to impose an environmental levy because we impose stricter environmental standards on our manufacturers and we're not going to let you outdo our manufacturers because you can just pump all your crap into the river. Um, and same sort of thing with people that use child labour or cheap labour, uh, have bad labour practices. Um, we could say, well, you're bringing that in here. You're competing with our factory. We, we, we want some sort of a, a leveller here, and that might be a, a, a social levy on people that exploit, use, use children to mine um, lithium or whatever in Africa or some of those horrendous things that I've seen on videos recently. Um, so I think we would be within our rights to some extent to do that, but um, it would be within a balanced view of, of world trade. And um, it's not, I'm not saying we should produce everything, but there'd be certain things we could definitely do, I'm sure. Yeah, it definitely seems reasonable. Um, what's your thoughts on, I, I, we're coming up to maybe the end of the episode, but what's your thoughts on nuclear power? Um, I see it touted as the the... Uh, ultimate solution to energy. I don't know. I'm, look, to be honest, I'm not an expert on nuclear power. Um, not, I'm neither for or against because I haven't analysed the evidence. So um, uh, I'd want to see the evidence. And I, the, the little I know is that they're very expensive to set up, very expensive to decommission. Um, the, I, I don't know about the risks are these days with dealing in nuclear power. Everyone assures me it's safe. <laughs> So I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that particular thing because it's not really an area of my expertise. Fair enough. Just wanted to see if you had any um, opinions on it. Um, unless you have anything else to add, Matthew or Martin, uh, I think we'll, we're coming to the end of the episode and I'll wrap up. Did you want to jump in and say anything, guys? Um, well, if I could just mention to your listeners that who, who agree that we need to stabilise our population and end this big Australia mass immigration agenda, if they could jump onto our website, population.org.au, and you'll see it blazoned everywhere, to sign our position statement and share it with their friends. Because if we can get enough Australians to sign that, then we will be able to exert some sort of influence over all politicians. Um, that That's our key action at the moment, is to get signatures on the position statement and get people talking about it freely and openly without the horrible racist accusations. And let's talk about the economics, the ecology, rationally, and get the emotion out of it. And let's get something done and stop these politicians from from overpopulating our land. Well, yeah, I think all of us who are opposed to immigration, for whatever, for various reasons, we can all work together um, to achieve that goal. Um, yeah. Matthew? 
Did you want to say something, sorry? Uh, no, good. I just wanted to say thank you to Martin for coming and joining us this week. Very good to have your insight into this uh, very important and very uh, 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 prescient um, topic. Thanks, Matthew. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, John, too. No, thank you very much for joining us, Martin. Um, perhaps we'll have you on in the future should there be any uh, large uh, environmental news uh, in the media that week. Um, but for now, I'll sign off. Uh, I hope everyone has a great week. Make sure you check out population.org.au if you're interested in anything that Martin had to say. Um, make sure you also follow the National Observer uh, on nationalobserver.substack.com. Um, that's where these episodes are uh, posted to, but you can also find the Backbench Drivers podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. So make sure you go and give us a follow there. Um, and so without further ado, thank you guys for joining us and uh, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.